Hello, and welcome to Evaluand, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evaluand. This episode continues our series on evaluation jobs by looking specifically at subcontracting. I'm pleased to chat with Dr. Tamara Hamai of Hamai Consulting. I actually first met Tamara at a past AEA conference. It was one of the independent consulting, um, the speed dating events. And I, you know, I met you there and found out that you are also a Claremont alum, right? Uh, which is like, oh, very cool. I love getting to meet other Claremont uh, at the time I was a student, but uh, now alum. Uh, it is a great event, so if you ever have a chance to go to a future AA conference, hopefully they continue to put them on. It, it's really great to get to meet a lot of people who are very knowledgeable in independent consulting and may not be the route I really went down after, you know, uh, after I graduated and stuff, but alas, it was very helpful. Also, if you are interested in independent consulting, that AEA TIG is fabulous. It's very active, very engaged with its members. But today we're going to talk specifically about one aspect of independent consulting, which is subcontracting. And I'm very excited to have Tamara on the podcast to talk about this topic. So welcome to the podcast, Tamara. Thanks for having me. So uh, just to get started, I wonder if you could maybe introduce yourself for our listeners. Who are you? What do you do? Maybe a little bit about that evaluation background. Yeah. Um, So I actually started studying evaluation accidentally. (laughs) So I I think similar to many people in the different disciplines, we start as researchers. And I was, I actually went to Claremont Graduate University for applied developmental psychology, but I I, I used to tell my uh, advisor, like, I'm, I'm not interested in applied work. I'm going to be a traditional researcher. I'm just (laughs) here to learn how to do research. And so I was convinced I was going to be just a researcher and that all the other stuff I was learning in the biz apply settings was not going to be relevant to me. (laughs) But I had to work during school to pay the bills and pay tuition and still paying that tuition. And (laughs) oh, gosh. (laughs) And so I was working in really the area that there are the most jobs outside of academia, which are nonprofit organizations, research and evaluation departments. So I was learning evaluation in classes and learning applied research in classes and then going into applied settings and actually doing applied research on accident, basically, just because I had to. And I'm really glad that it happened because I really do love it. It is like, I can't even imagine myself as a traditional researcher now. I feel like I would have been miserable if I went that route. (laughs) So, uh, So yeah, evaluation became my home and applied research is my secondary like container. uh, And the AEA TIG and the evaluation community really are the people that when I'm with that community, I feel like I'm with my people. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Yeah. I feel, I feel very similarly. I also came for not the applied developmental. They didn't have that anymore when I came, but the positive uh, developmental degree. And then they went, I was like, oh, oh evaluation is actually what I really want to do. So, and also AEA does feel like my professional home as well. So awesome. Very cool. Um, so getting into our topic for today, how would, what do you, when, when I say subcontracting, like, what does that mean to you? Subcontracting, I actually think is not very different than any other contract as an evaluator. Uh, it's just that your client is another evaluator instead of the client being the program or the organization that you're doing the evaluation with. And so it's like you have a middle person or a partner or collaborator on a project. So it's really just about who's kind of paying you your check as compared to the work being any different. The work Mm -hmm. is usually very similar. Um, You're doing some portion of an evaluation sometimes a very um, big portion, sometimes a small one. And uh, the official contract that client has is with the primary contractor who then subcontracts you. So it's just like tiers of contracts of who's obligated to whom to do what. So a subcontractor would be contracted with like the larger maybe evaluation firm who Mm -hmm. is then contracted by the organization seeking the evaluation services. 
Yes. And I do think it's a kind of an important thing to highlight. I'm glad you worded it that way because subcontracting does not mean that you are smaller than like Mm -hmm. in a business size than whoever is the primary contractor. Um, With some of my partners, we actually switch who is the sub and who is the primary for different, you know, so sometimes we are primary, sometimes we're sub kind of to kind of keep it even, but also just to manage the administrative burden because the primary is the one who has to invoice the client and, you know, keep up the paperwork trail with the client, whereas the subcontractor only has to worry about that with the other evaluator. Interesting. So you're using subcontracting as a way to minimize the paperwork in a more partnership type deal with other organizations? Yeah, it can look a lot of different ways. And I think that's what, I think that's one of the fun things about consulting is just like your work looks different every time almost. Um, So as a, I would say the most traditional way people think about, the most typical way people think about subcontracting is I have an evaluation project I'm contracted to do and I I don't have either enough time or I don't have the exact skill set necessary to do that like piece of the data analysis or that piece of the data collection. Uh, And so I will contract, subcontract somebody else who has that skill set or just has more time to help make up for what I don't have. That sometimes gets warped into becoming more of like an actually employer-employee relationship of where the prime treats the subcontractor as if they work for them. But that's like doing it wrong. (laughs) That's like the bad way to do it. You don't want to do it that way. The way that you're really going to get leverage out of being a subcontractor and subcontracting is viewing that person as a partner in the work. Mm -hmm. So they play a role that supplements your role. Like they are adding value to the project that you are not adding. So what is that value? Is it that they are tackling all the data collection or is it that they are a strategic thought partner with you where they just are in discussion with you all the time around how do we approach this? How do we design that? Like, okay. um, Or is it just administrative? If you subcontract someone just to handle the admin, like report document creation is it they're a better writer than you, right? So whether it's the size of the contract will vary based on how much value they're adding to the project, but it shouldn't be viewed as they're going to always be able to do exactly what I say. I'm going to tell them what they do when they do it. Mm-hmm. Like, And that's not what you as a subcontractor should go in looking for. You shouldn't be looking for just a job. Cause like, if you want a job, go, go to get a job. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Like Subcontracting is not, it, it's nice. Cause it'll give you some stability of like, they have multiple projects so they can maybe give you more work over time. But, um, but it's not the same as having some sort of stable amount of work. And you just, when they say jump, you jump. Yeah, I appreciate that because I, I now that you've said all that, I do realize I did have a very traditional mindset about what subcontracting usually looks like. And it's nice to realize that it doesn't have to look that way, that it can be more of a partnership between contractors, um, which sounds a lot more appealing than thinking of myself if, if I'm going to subcontracting as just an employee that doesn't get the benefits of being an employee, right? Because yeah, if, if, if that's what I were interested in, then yeah, I should go get the stability and the benefits that come with uh, employment at that level. Mm-hmm. And just exploitation wise, I've seen just too many people get exploited as a subcontractor because they don't know like what the options are. Um, I mean, I really view subcontracting as just another like target market. So mm-hmm. when I'm thinking of marketing, my target market, my primary target market are going to be the nonprofits, the philanthropies, the public agencies, the organizations that are doing the program, running the program that would be seeking the evaluator to support their work. That's That's like my bread and butter, but I subcontracting is, uh, I also do it and it's a supplementary thing for me. It was actually also the first way I got into consulting. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
the client then, the actual target market of who I'm marketing to, to get those contracts is the evaluation firms or the evaluators. Right. So you actually have to market differently and you still have to engage in marketing. It doesn't exempt you from having to do what so many people hate to do, which is market and sell. Yeah. <laughs> you still have to do that, but you're doing it with a different audience in mind. You're thinking, how do I connect with and build relationships with and build trust with other evaluators who can subcontract with me uh, as compared to how do I connect with and build relationships with and build trust with nonprofits or higher education or whoever your main target market is. Yeah. I appreciate that. Cause it, it'll make you more likely to find work, right? If you're not just trying to seek out the nonprofits. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you said that um, you started off with subcontracting. How did you how did you find those jobs? How did you find your first ones? Um, how do you recommend people find them now if it's any different or if you have lessons learned from that process? Well, what's I sometimes have a little bit of like that nostalgic jealousy of like when people are starting out because there is this huge network of people that you know, like, you know, a lot of evaluators, a lot of people that work in nonprofits, a lot of people that are in the industry from wherever you're coming from, whether it's school or jobs, or even if you're coming from another industry and you're changing directions. Mm -hmm. And so you're starting an evaluation and it's new to you. You still know people that work in organizations, like you have this network. And so What's nice about subcontracting is that it's like a really low ask when you're tapping your network in that first few years. And so you can say, hey, I'm consulting. I know that you're working on, you know, some sort of work. Could I just help you out and take some burden off your plate? Like, these are some of my strengths. These are some of my skill sets. And you can learn from those projects as a sub how they're approaching the work. So you can see how they're managing contracts, how they're communicating with clients, how they're getting their client, right? Like you can learn a lot about how business works. If you're considering consulting, you also can learn a lot about how evaluation in real world works because yeah, school's not like the real world. (laughs) And and so um, it's really a great way to start. And that's what I did is I, I mean, I had quit my job without a job and I, I consulted, I started consulting just because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And some (laughs) person put this consulting bug in my head like two weeks ago. And so I'm going to just try it. And so I just asked everybody I knew. I just said, hey, I'm consulting now. You have any work for me? And a couple of my evaluation colleagues said, oh, well, I'm working on this project. Like you could help because they knew that I was good at stats. Thank you, Claremont Graduate University. And (laughs) so uh, I, so I just helped them with data analysis initially, you know, and that was how I sort of, it's like, you get your first contracts, you get some revenue coming in. And so you can start to think about the business more holistically because you actually have some revenue coming in. Uh, So it's a really, really good way when, especially when your confidence is not built up yet to get experience, just like you would get experience in like a job, because you have other people you're working with who have experience that you can then watch and either model or watch and do exactly the opposite on purpose or whatever it is that you're seeing uh, done. Yeah. And and it's going to be probably a more digestible ask than like taking on your first full evaluation contract, right. From start to finish like that. That's huge. That's, that's a big commitment and responsibility versus I'm just going to do the data analysis for you. (laughs) Yeah. And also clients tend to want to contract people who have experience. Like, so it's also just harder to get those first few contracts if, especially if you're really new in the field. So if mm. you're just, if you went straight into school and then you just finished school and so you don't have a lot of project experience, maybe you only have one or two like student projects, it's going to, you're just not going to be as competitive in a consulting, particularly like going into a whole project on your own. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Like sometimes you have great people in your network who are willing to go to bat for you, you know, and Um, But subcontracting is a really good way to start building that resume, 
building the experience, getting work samples, you know, like having building that portfolio that then you can use to demonstrate your skills and qualifications when you're competing for those bigger projects, those whole projects later on. One of the things that piques my anxiety, let's say, (laughs) is the idea of the contract itself. And so I'm curious, like, what tips do you have or recommendations for like, putting together a contract either as the primary or as the subcontractor for that? Like, how do how do you do that? Because that that's the one thing that was always just kind of like, kind of freaks me out of like, oh, you know, this is all legal stuff. And I don't want to get sued. I don't want them to sue me. Uh, I don't want to have to sue them. Um, and like, thoughts on that? Well, first have a contract. Yeah, <laughs> always good. have a contract. <laughs> um, I'm actually surprised how much people do without contracts. Mm. Uh, I, I, I super, super recommend always have a contract, even if it's a tiny project. And one of the reasons is that the best thing the contracts do is get everyone on the same page with the expectations, that clarity of who's doing what and when, like, you don't realize how much you're assuming in your head or you're expecting without putting it on paper. So first, definitely have a contract. In that contract, you want to cover like a clear scope of work and how you're getting paid for that scope of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if it's, I mean, I don't really do hourly contracts, but, and I don't recommend them, but I know a lot of people do hourly contracts. So you would want to specify how much you're getting per hour, how you're invoicing that, how they're paying you. Uh, I do deliverable based fixed rate contracts. Yeah. So for me, a contract will always, even for a subcontract, will always have specifically what deliverables I'm providing and how much they're paying per deliverable. If there's going to be required like approval, review and approval, you need to put that in the scope of saying with one round of revisions or with review and then, you know, so that they know that they only have so many revision iterations and you know you only have so many revision iterations because I have had people when like try to have almost like infinite iterations on thing and I said you know like we don't have that in our contract I was I told you I'd be available for two two revisions or whatever it was and I did those and at this point if you want to take it further you need to revise it yourself like you it's or you need to pay me more. Right. <laughs> you know, um, so that sort of specificity. Also, legally, it's important that you have a contract that aligns with your state laws around contracting, because I do find that many non many um, evaluation consultants are sole proprietors. That means they haven't incorporated mm-hmm. as like an S Corp or a C Corp. And so because they're not considered a legal company they are treated as a individual and that's where you get kind of in messy territory with some of the states like i'm in california so there's a lot of mess uh but where you might be considered an employee and so even if you have a contract you might legally be an employee and so having a, a, some of those protections in the language like this is not an employer employee relationship that there's no benefits there's uh the primary contractor or whoever the client is cannot actually dictate how you do the work. Like Mm -hmm. as a subcontractor, you work on your schedule and you work at your location and you work with your materials. Um, So they can't, for example, make you go to their office and use their computers. They can't make you use their email address. They can't make you, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so there's, things that the contract will help put in place where even if they're not used to subcontracting, you can help make sure that you have your protections in place. Yeah. And to find out, like better find out what those state regulations would be, would you recommend something like a small business association for the state, like to find out how to prepare yourself for your state's laws? Lawyers, lawyers. I mean, I, so I know that I know that it feels, it can feel scary, like engaging with a lawyer, but honestly, the upfront cost of having them actually write your basically contract template 
So write a contract template for you and explain the different things and you can ask questions and talk through. Like I have actually altered the intellectual property clause that's in our contracts with my lawyer because they defaulted to what they default to. And I said, that's not actually what I want. Like I want it this way. And so then they rewrote it for me. Right. Um, and now I use that contract with all of my clients. Right. So it's an upfront cost as part of, I think, just startup costs, like at, if you're going into business and if you're in business already, it's like retroactive startup costs because you probably should have done this before. Uh, so get a lawyer to actually draft out a contract for your state that you're comfortable with and make sure you understand it because you want to know what every clause in there is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can use that because I'll tell you, people love to get a contract sent to them. <laughs> like, oh, wait, I don't have to write the contract? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, who who does this? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, whether it's a client that is the nonprofit or the organization or whether it's a subcontract, having that contract template that you can easily then just send the contract to them for signature, it expedites things. And they're like, oh, wow, you're so pro. Like, where you're going to take care of me. This is great. (laughs) Do you have people who will come back and be like, no, 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 this is, this is our contract that you need to sign. Uh, Yeah. And at that point, public agencies, public agencies, you know, they Mm. are, they're, they're government. So sometimes they'll just sign your contract, but a lot of the time they have like their own council that has like their 37 page document of whatever, (laughs) you know, that they want you to sign. Um, same with colleges. Some colleges or universities have like their set because their lawyer has said, you must, you have to use this contract. And so that's like, I'll use that when they have it. And they don't ever care if I've sent them a contract. They'll just say, oh, we can't use that one here. We're going we're gonna to send you a new one. And at, at that point, is that more of a negotiation of just making sure that you're both in agreement with everything before yeah. things are signed? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so totally tangent here but you like nobody should be afraid to challenge something that's in a contract before you sign it like genuinely it doesn't matter who your client is the worst they're going to say is no right so if you don't like something in the contract or don't understand it or if you don't think it's applicable to your organization um so for example there's a lot of insurance requirements and things that people put in there sometimes and you're like I'm not even coming to your office like why are you making me have insurance you know they'll take it out a lot of the time or they'll just change it they don't actually care it's just their template mm-hmm. so so just ask and then if there is a hill that you want to like have a battle on because they say no and but it really means a lot to you and sometimes it's worth it. Like intellectual property in particular is one that is worth fighting for. Um, you could choose to have that fight or just to be like, okay, well, never mind. I'll sign it anyway. I'm curious, what is broadly speaking, your intellectual property? How, how do you approach that in your work? So generically intellectual property is any idea that you have, any work that you create or idea you have. Like, and so most of the time, we don't actually acknowledge that we generate a huge amount of intellectual property as we're doing an evaluation or doing any sort of work. And so the, I would say the default is the client will give you a contract that says that they own everything you create and that you don't own it. Right. So what that does in practice, it means that um, the report you create. Like if you create a report document or like even a an, uh, like a brief or you do a presentation, the slides or whatever materials you're using, they own it all. So not only can they use it however they want, so they can re-air it if it's a recorded thing, they can share the document with whomever they want to share it with. They even could technically edit it because mm-hmm. they own it. So, but your name doesn't even have to necessarily be on it. Like they could take your report and just erase your name and totally be like in the right because they own the property. So that's where it becomes like, wait, we actually want to have at least joint ownership, (laughs) right? So I can at least use it. Like if I created a data collection tool 
if they own it, that means I can't use that tool again right? without their permission or even potentially paying some licensing fee. So, um, so I recommend that you go for at least joint ownership. If it's something that is monetizable, like they could sell it and make money, that's where you might want to start seeking where you have sole ownership or you maintain ownership of all your intellectual property mm-hmm. um, because you don't know how they're going to be then using your ideas and face and potential, you know, like, cause if your image, for example, is in a recorded presentation and they start selling it, like you don't know how they're going to be marketing it and who they're going to be distributing it to. And so you have to kind of be careful how your reputation could get impacted by how they use materials. Yeah. It's, it's a big thing. It's like a, it's a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. Which, oh gosh, I, I, I want to get into it because I think it's really important. I haven't, I haven't thought about it as much, right? I've always just like, oh yeah, it's your data. It's your organization. It's yours, but you're right. Cause the, the big issue I keep coming across is, um, you know, you've produced a report and you want to use that as, for example, your portfolio to be like, this is the quality of the work that I produced. But if, it's their intellectual property, then you're not allowed to do that unless they make it public facing, which nine times out of 10, they don't do that. And so then I'm going back and seeking permission to share the work that I created for them. It's just making me realize, um, trying, I, I should be more thoughtful about how I can put that into contracts and stuff to ensure that I can still use that stuff. And also like, I think especially the, what you're saying about like survey instruments or data collection tools and stuff like that, that sounds like a really important one to keep your intellectual property as much as possible. And and maybe not even joint unless like there's a reason for that. So great thoughts that I really appreciate because I had never thought about this, at least to this capacity. Yeah. I, unfortunately you learn about and confront these things through experience (laughs) right and so as much as you can you know interact with people who have been in all different types of contracts and situations the more you're going to learn proactively about how to avoid some of these lessons they learn the hard way but ip is definitely one of those things that everyone i know learns about it the hard way it's like it's hard to learn proactively because you don't even know what to try to avoid until someone uses something and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> Are there other things that people should, you know, take to heart and try to avoid uh, lessons learned in your experience with doing this work? I wouldn't say necessarily to avoid, but I think the things that I would recommend is don't put yourself like in an inferior position to other people, just because you're either new, you've never done that before, or, you know, I see people doubt themselves and allow people to get away with mm-hmm. things they shouldn't because that you, you don't have the confidence to like stand up for yourself. And in subcontracting, it comes up a lot, right. Of like someone who has more experience, might subcontract someone with less experience And so that person with less experience, especially coming out of academia, where they're already trained into subservience, you know, like they, (laughs) they just do whatever they're asked and maybe they're underpaid or they work more hours than they were supposed to, or, um, they don't feel comfortable sharing like, Ooh, I got to the number of hours I was supposed to stop at, but the work's not done. And so I should work more and not tell them like communicate be stand up for yourself, like know that it doesn't matter how new or seasoned you are in the field, like you are doing something valuable. Mm -hmm. And most likely that person has no problem paying you more or, you know, changing whatever the plan is. They just need to know that you're not comfortable with that or that something needs to change. And so, you know, ask for that contract amendment or say, uh, you know, I really think that we need to put five more hours in this contract or whatever it is so that you can comfortably do the work at the quality level that you know you need and want to do it at. Thinking of contract amendments, um, one of the things that uh, 
comes up a lot is those unspoken assumptions come up of like, oh, you know, I, I, I thought you had this data that you want me to analyze and you don't, or I thought your data was organized in a meaningful fashion and it's not. And so the scope of work has significantly increased as a result of that. Um, how do you go about those contract amendment conversations to, you know, make sure you're not just doing extra work just because you didn't put it in the contract originally? So contract amendments are not hard. So like, I think that's ultimately what, <laughs> of when something comes up, you say like, this, these data are not as clean as we, you, we discussed before. It's going to take much more time. So would you, as the prime, like to do that and get it to where we had originally agreed it would be? And then give it to me. Or would you like to alter mm -hmm. my scope and budget so that I can do it? And depending on, you know, the project and depending how tight someone's budget is, you know, how big the organization is that you're, is the prime contract, because they may have just, you know, budget they could float so they could absorb like a, a small change. You know, those, those things will influence how they respond, but even just by giving them the two options, they recognize like, okay, this person is knows what they're doing and they can handle themselves, right? Like I, they're not going to try to guess. They'll say, oh, well, I didn't even know the options or that's fine. I'll do it myself or, you know, whatever it is. So contract amendments themselves, you could either just write a whole new contract just like repeat your contract and add a chunk and it'll re and replace the previous contract. Mm -hmm. um, or you could do an addendum where it's like everyone signs, like we're adding this piece to the existing contract. I actually find new contracts are easier. Do you recommend, so one of the recommendations you said already was to have a lawyer uh, or at least have a lawyer help you draft your initial contract language and stuff. Um, what about like liability insurance or things like that? So, oh, insurance. <laughs> I mean, I'll just like my bias is I generally think insurance is a scam, but, <laughs> but I have it. <laughs> yeah. um, so there are different kinds of insurance. And so you have to kind of assess what are some of the real risks that exist and are they things that are actually insured? Or insurable. Mm. So we have errors and omission uh, insurance, which is also called professional liability insurance. They're literally just two names for exactly the same thing. And I don't know why there's two names, but there are. <laughs> uh, and what that insures, that's sort of like the way I describe it is like malpractice insurance. So if you were a doctor, like a, well, like a medical doctor, okay. If you were a medical doctor and you messed up some procedure, right? Like malpractice insurance would cover any sort of cost that came as a result of that error mm -hmm. or omission, right? And so as evaluators, we are in organizations business, <laughs> you know? So we are giving advice or recommendations um, or information that may potentially be wrong. And so the liability there is that we give a recommendation or advice that they then follow that has some sort of consequence, a negative consequence, as compared to what we hope, which is the positive consequence. Yeah. So um, if they wanted to sue you for the financial cost of the consequences, errors and omissions insurance or professional liability insurance would cover that. I never in my life have seen anyone actually have a claim in our field. Um, but it, I guess it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also general liability insurance, which um, is often asked for by uh, clients. And general liability insurance is the equivalent of like, homeowner's insurance. Like if you um, tripped and injured yourself either at your office or at their office or somewhere, that insurance covers like your medical costs. Um, or if you like 
tripped and fell and with my luck, like elbowed the wall and punched a hole in it. Like, you know, the cost of repairing the wall would be covered by general liability insurance. Um, if you are in evaluation consulting where you're not on site very often, it's not as applicable to you. Mm-hmm. If I mean, if you're just working at home and you don't go to your client's site, chances are very low that you really, really will ever use general liability insurance. Um, but at, I've shared public agencies are some of my clients now. So government, it doesn't matter where, where you are. Like they want everything covered and yeah. they don't necessarily want it covered by their insurance because then their premiums might go up if anything happened. So they want you to have insurance just to sign the contract, even if it's not applicable. Um, so that's a place where it might be worth pushing back and saying like, I'm not driving a car for this project. So why are you requiring automobile insurance? Mm-hmm. Or um, actually one that you will win regularly is if you don't have any employees, if it's just you, um, workers' compensation insurance is not actually relevant, but they will ask for that requirement. And all you have to say is, I don't have any employees. It's just me. And then they'll say, oh, okay, it's fine. Because as an owner, you're, you can exempt yourself from workers' comp. But with the general liability and the professional liability insurance, sometimes they will they will just be firm and say, it doesn't matter. Our lawyer says we have to have it. And so, mm-hmm. so we I carry the, all those insurances primarily just to like meet my contractual obligations for all the clients so I don't have to fight those things because the cost is small relative to how much money it helps me bring in. Yeah. Um, but when you're a small freelancer, when you just are getting started, if you don't have a lot of extra revenue, it's worth at least asking if you can get it removed. Um, but that's if you personally like are willing to t- accept any liability that that insurance would be covering otherwise. If you're somebody who's going to be subcontracting to do data collection on site, would you then more strongly recommend that you take on that general liability insurance? So this is where it's like you balance your risk, right? Like if you are out and doing a, I don't know, a focus group on some like college campus and I don't know, you slip on a banana in the cafeteria, you know, like, (laughs) uh, you know, like that's the sort of risk you're talking. I mean, there is potential risk of like, if they had an earthquake and like the building collapsed and like you got in a series, like there are things that could happen. So it's just a very small probability. And as you know, stats professor, you know, like it's, it's you, you choosing how probable that risk is and how versus the amount of cost it is to have the insurance. And if it's worth it to you, if it helps you to feel, have that peace of mind or, if you feel like oh, I'll risk it because it's only a 0.1% or like I'd rather getting hit by lightning is more common, you know, like it's totally up to your risk aversion. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Who do you think would be the people who would really like this type of work? So subcontracting uh, in evaluation, I feel like it works really well for people who like to work in teams because you do have to collaborate with people Um, as compared to a lot of evaluation consultants that are just solo and they just do everything on their own. There's not as much Mm. team work. Um, Subbing is really good for teams. It's good for people who enjoy like the learning from other people's approach to the work. Um, So regardless of how, where you are in your career, like I enjoy working with other people and seeing how they approach the work and because it helps me also become better at what I do. Yeah. Um, and generally people who aren't sure that they want to have a solo business, like if you're not sure that solopreneurship kind of is your, like as a consultant, your future, if you're open to this idea that you might have employees or you might be part of a bigger team that you might work for another consulting company, you know, the subcontracting is a really good way to figure out like what you do and don't want in relationships, how to communicate, how to work in teams in ways that work well for you or don't work well. 
Is there anything else that, you know, we haven't covered about subcontracting or maybe independent consulting more broadly speaking that you think would be helpful to share with listeners? Uh, Well, one message I think that doesn't get out there enough in general about consulting is that there is not one way to do business and there's not one evaluation consulting business like model. I think when I was starting out, what gosh, like 14 years ago or whatever it was, like um, all I knew was the solopreneur hourly contract where you subcontract for people and eventually maybe you'll work your way into having your own projects. That's all I'd ever heard of. Yeah. And it is by far not the only way to do business. And ultimately, if you want to play with consulting, if you want to experiment with it, um, dreaming of what you actually want your life to be, what you want your business to be, and then working toward building that is going to give you more joy and more connection to the work you do and connect you more to being a consultant than if you just try to take a formula and follow it. Mm. And it sounds like the subcontracting would allow you to find out what you are looking for a lot better than Mm -hmm. if you went to that full-time position somewhere else, or if you went straight into solopreneurship and stuff like that. Yeah. Full-time evaluation jobs in bigger companies are nothing like consulting. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're not going to learn much about consulting doing that. You might learn what you do and don't like about the work. So what kinds of projects you want to work on, what role you want to play on the projects, which does help you because then you can say, well, I want this piece. I really don't want this piece. So who should I partner with or who should I have on my team or, you know, who should I subcontract with to give myself that time to focus on that piece of the work? Um, But otherwise you're not going to learn about the options in consulting until you dive in. It's not like a book study type thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what we, we have a, there are books out there on getting started. And I remember reading like all that I could get my hands on and still feeling like I'm not sure what I'm doing because everybody has their own pieces of advice. Um, Mm -hmm. And just trying to figure out how I wanted to do it. I realized I didn't want to do it at least not right now in my life, but Mm -hmm. there's something about that, uh, uh, full-time salaried position that felt really good after doing consulting for three, four years and just not knowing when my next paycheck was coming in, all that type of stuff. But, you know, someday maybe go back. Uh, and this has been really helpful. I really appreciate it of thinking about how to get started in this type of work and how perhaps like I might start doing more subcontracting now that I feel like a little bit more knowledgeable about how I can do it in a way that protects myself, but also make sure that the work is done well. One thing that I usually like to end the show with is um, something that I lovingly take from Code Switch. They haven't been doing it lately, but they ask what song is giving you life. And I'm just curious what in the evaluation field profession, broadly speaking, is giving you life right now? Well, I don't know if there's like a word for it, but uh, I see like Vidya Shankar and... um, Aisha Rios and Jerry Lynn Peake and how they are just like challenging how we look at the world, right? Mm -hmm. And specifically how we liberate ourselves from structures that we don't always acknowledge or know that we are perpetuating systems of oppression and we are cogs in somebody else's machine sort of. And so every time I see, like, I'm in a conversation with them or see them writing about things and the work that they're doing, it just, like, gives me life because Mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh, if I were brilliant, as brilliant as they were, I would absolutely be doing that kind of work. I am nowhere close to as brilliant as they are. And (laughs) seeing how they see the world, like, helps me to be a better human. And so that is like, I would say the number one thing the last several years. Definitely agree. Yeah. They have very much challenged the way I think about evaluation. And I think the way the field has been thinking about evaluation in, in ways that make our field so much better. 
um, with, but also recognizing you have so many more challenges to talk about and fight about and, you know, really start to dismantle and really shift the way we think and do our work. So yeah, I totally agree. They're incredible human beings. And then lastly, uh, anything coming up for you, anything that you want to share with our listeners um, about your personal professional life that you want to share? One of the, the exciting projects, like set of work that I've been doing actually hasn't been evaluation, but it shapes evaluation. Because mm-hmm. So for me, I don't actually exclusively think of evaluation as what I do. I incorporate all organizational development into it. I think strategic thought and planning and that like, so we have a, a little more, a little broader um, chunk when we describe what we do, but but we've been doing trauma-informed organization and trauma-informed systems work with several organizations in San Mateo County. And just thinking about and working with organizations in how do you become more trauma and resiliency informed as an organization, as compared to just that trauma-informed care model that's been mm-hmm. very trendy for a long time. Um, and what that means for also equity and fighting the great recession and whatever, like the great resignation and all of the great things that are happening right now, going through this trauma and resilience informed systems work during the pandemic. It's been really interesting. I really believe that taking trauma informed approaches to everything we do, whether it's evaluation or strategic planning or the organizational programs that we are working with, I think is fundamental to our future. And I Mm -hmm. think it's more than ever right now because we have just on a global scale had such ongoing trauma. Yeah. So healing is important. And how do we as evaluators, as consultants, as people interacting in systems that have people in them, right? Like make healing spaces and healing environments to allow us all to just kind of like take a breath and recuperate after everything we've been going through. In addition to all the normal traumas that are part of life. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's not only a growing piece of work for us, but also just hugely interesting to me. Like I am consuming all the things and like anyone who wants to ever have a conversation with me about it, please. (laughs) Like I'm in. (laughs) Yeah, we had, there's a previous conversation, a previous episode with uh, Martha Brown, uh, who I think worked with you as well on this type of stuff uh, on trauma-informed evaluation and organizations and stuff. So if listeners are interested in learning more, there's that, there's that one, but it sounds like we can have more conversations about it. Cause I agree the collective trauma we have gone through in the past three years, but also the past decade and also the past 50 years, right? Like there has been trauma upon trauma upon trauma that um, I can imagine a lot of people are not um, recognizing, let alone dealing with. And when that trauma builds up on each on itself, that can lead to a lot more trauma, right? And, and a lot of poor responses to that trauma and, I think a lot of us need to be thinking a lot more about the trauma that exists in our lives right now and how we can work together to get through it because it's, yeah, there's a lot going on in life right now. (laughs) Yeah. And in organizations we have, whether we're a small or big organization, we have a huge amount of power over our environment. Mm -hmm. And so when we are out collecting data, or when when we are having community meetings, sharing out results or engaging community in strategic planning conversations, like all the different places that we as evaluators are in spaces, we have power over how we create those spaces. And it's not that you have to like, you know, have a meditation at the beginning of your every meeting, like, but just how you facilitate a discussion to acknowledge power dynamics or how you word things 
to be as non-triggering and as warm and safe as possible, like that psychological safety. Um, and just also acknowledging that we are not therapists, right? That we can't actually do all the things. And so how do we create spaces that are as safe as possible, as rejuvenating and um, welcoming so that people can bring more of themselves into a space safely uh, and knowing when to step back and say, I'm not the right person to help you right now, or uh, this is this is having a negative consequence. Like this conversation is triggering for you. And so let me make sure that I'm connecting you to somebody right now to help you to mediate, remediate that harm or mitigate that harm. Right. Um, yeah. It's just not, it's not all just breathing exercises, right? Like it's, it's a much more challenging idea of how we hold space. Yeah. 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 And in this work in, in general is very challenging work, especially when you're thinking at the organizational level, like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about trauma-informed pedagogy and how I bring that lens to my teaching work, for example, but that's me in the classroom with my students, as opposed to what can a trauma-informed university could look like? Um, what could my uh, trauma-informed evaluation firm look like? Um, and so on. So that just exponentially increases the challenge, but is also, I think, where the work needs to be happening more so than at the individual level. So I'm glad you're thinking about it. And I look forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing with this. And overall, just thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to, to meet you, chat with you and learn from you today. And listeners, if you are interested in learning more, Tamara's contact information will be in the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalueland.